Last week, and I re-listened to that message, I thought maybe I, uh, I rambled a little too much last week, but, um, uh, but just listening to it, I just basically kind of shared my heart. We didn't, we didn't look into a lot of Bible verses last week, and so we're going to kind of do the opposite of that tonight, but um, it's been a few weeks since we've said this, but functional oneness with God is what every human longs for the most. Not just to be one with God, but to function in oneness with Him. Functional oneness with God is what we were created for. It's what we lost when Adam fell and sinned. And it's what Jesus came to restore for us and for Father God. So the, the, the oneness and the functional oneness with God is not just for our benefit and blessing, but for Father God's benefit and blessing as well. Remember, He's forgiven you for His sake. Functional oneness is not possible without positional oneness. But positional oneness alone will not satisfy our deepest longing any more than a marriage license alone will satisfy our desire for a spouse. Amen. And so the blood of Jesus has made us positionally one with God the Father. And that's important. It's a necessary uh, first step. But the positional oneness is not what we long for the most. It's the functional oneness. We could maybe say it this way, positional oneness is what we needed the most, amen. But it's the functional oneness that we long for, amen. Oneness and fellowship with God are not possible without right standing with God. And this should go a long way towards explaining why Father has given to us an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness according to Romans 5 and 17. Sin caused death. Death is separation, and separation from God is the complete opposite of fellowship with God. So Jesus came to solve our separation problem. The only way to solve our separation problem is to solve our sin problem because the sin is what separated us from our Heavenly Father. So turn with me tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to do a little Bible study teaching tonight. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14, 15, and 16. I'm going to put them on the screen first in the New King James Version. And there are some slight differences between the New King James and the King James. And so after we look at the New King James, I'll put the King James Version up with some highlighted words that we're going to zero in on and maybe even drill down into a little bit tonight. So what we find in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So we've established now over the course of many Wednesday nights together that God created us in his image and in his likeness because he desired to have fellowship and oneness with us. We know that our father Adam chose other things and ultimately separated himself 
and all of us from God the Father, but Jesus, the last Adam, He came to restore us back into right standing and then ultimately positional and functional oneness with God the Father. And we see here verses that are often used, and and it's okay, I'm not saying this is a wrong application, but, you know, when we were younger in youth group and in church, they would always tell us that we shouldn't date unbelievers. And and, um, so the ultimate answer to every question is be led by the Spirit. But, you know, if you're going to, you know, young people, if you're going to enter into a dating relationship, I think... You know, if the person doesn't want the same thing out of life that you want, then don't waste your time or theirs. Amen. And, um, and a lot of times we, we are attracted to people for different reasons. But again, if you're not careful, um, you'll wind up falling in love with somebody that you don't need to spend the rest of your life with. Okay. All right. And, um, but there's lots of things here that we can look at and go to and, and a lot of people come to, to come to Christ and their spouse isn't a believer and, and of course the word has a lot to say about that that doesn't mean divorce them it means that your lifestyle and conversation will ultimately draw them into that place of salvation I'm not here to teach you all that tonight but I want us to kind of break the mold of what we often think of when we go to these verses and let's let the Holy Spirit take the multi-layered manifold wisdom of God and reveal some other things to us besides choosing a spouse or, or, or who to date and who not to date, okay? Now, before I show you the King James Version of this, where we'll kind of settle in and talk about, one thing you have to understand about God is He's not a do-as-I-say God. And do you ever have your parents ever say, do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do? You know, especially when, when Matt and myself and then my baby sister Meredith, when, you know, we start getting close to getting our driver's permit and driver's license, you know. If uh, if Dad ever blew through a yellow light or went too fast or something like that, you know, that was kind of the do as I say, not as I do, you know. God is not a do as I say, uh, not as I do kind of God. In other words, what he thinks, what he says, and what he does is always in perfect alignment. Matter of fact, Dr. Miles Monroe defines holiness, the holiness of God, as God's thoughts, God's words, and God's actions always come into perfect alignment, perfect agreement. And this is another way of saying that God doesn't expect you and me to honor His Word, but Him not honor it Himself. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures reveal that God prefers His Word above His name, which means God doesn't exalt who He is over what He says. You know, people who position themselves over what they say means that they can say one thing and do another. But instead, God submits himself, places himself under his words. And, of course, expects you and me to do the same. So, God would never say, for example, to you and me, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever um, if he was somehow going to ignore that and do that himself. Okay? So we're still on the subject of fellowship. We're still on the subject of perfected forever. And we're going to dig into those things. I've had this in my notes for a little while. And 
to be honest with you, there's things in my notes that I'm more excited about teaching than this, but I really feel like the Holy Spirit prompted me to, to cover this tonight because it lays some important groundwork for what we're going to look at in the Wednesday nights ahead, but also it provides more context for why God has done for us and given to us and made us what he has done for us, given to us, and made us. All right. So now let's go to this same uh, three verses, but from the King James Version, and you'll see it reads a, a little bit differently. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement, an infidel, by the way, is, is someone who rejects uh, a belief or rejects God. Um, who's, again, it's translated in the New King James as an unbeliever, someone who refuses to believe. Don't say you can't, say you won't. It's a choice. He goes on to say, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I really like the King James Version in this situation better than the New King James for a couple of reasons. And, and one has to do with that last phrase where the New King James has it, I will dwell in them and walk among them, which we know that, that um, God desires to walk among His people. There's a lot that um, the Bible has to say about that. <coughs> Excuse me. But if you combine this up with the passage that we looked at last week out of the Gospel of John, we see that while Jesus was on the earth before his crucifixion, he acknowledged that the Holy Spirit was with them, or we could say he was among them. But remember what Jesus said. Jesus said that after he completed his passion, after he completed the work necessary for our salvation, that the Holy Spirit who was with us and them then would be in us, that He would be in us. And so among is important, and God still likes to be among His people. But Jesus paid the ultimate price for the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God to be in us. And so again, God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We could teach for a couple of weeks just on that last phrase there and all that the Bible has to say about these things. And even the part about the non-biological descendants of Abraham, remember what the Bible says about us in, I think it's Second Peter, that we were not a people at all. We were strangers, we were foreigners, we were outsiders, we were without God, and we were without hope. That's out of Ephesians. But now we are the people of God. We've been brought in. We were outsiders with no hope of ever being accepted. But now we, we are not just accepted, but we've been made one with God. Now, I think you can see the fellowship also in those last phrases there. God has said, I will dwell in them. Remember, he's quoting from the prophet about a day that will come, a day that we now live in. When it was originally stated and quoted, they were on this side of it looking ahead to it now we're on the other side of it looking back on it right and so we live in the day that God promised to dwell in us not just among us but to dwell in us and then walk in us 
walk in us. Paul said, the life which I now live, I live by my faith in the Son of God. And he goes on to say, for me to live is Christ, right? And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so the good news of the gospel is not be like Jesus, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is now in us, enabling us to live the life that God created us to live. Now, I know those of you watching online, I'm not sure you can see this, but I went through and highlighted some key words. I highlighted the word yoked, the word fellowship, the word communion, the word concord in the New King James, I'm sorry, in the King James and accord in the um, New King James, the word part and the word agreement. And these words are all fellowship words. As a matter of fact, we even see that the word uh, fellowship is used here. Interestingly enough, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but interesting enough, the word translated into our English word fellowship is not koinonia, which is the main Greek word for fellowship. It's the word motech, M-O-T-E-C-H-E. We'll explain that in just a moment. But the actual word koinonia, which is the key word in the original language for fellowship, is this word communion or, or common union. Okay. Now, Holy Spirit, thank you for helping us tonight. Amen. You agree with me? You believe in with me for, for revelation and understanding? So let's just work our way through some of this. Um, in Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine 29, and 30, Jesus says, um, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, I'm offering you to, uh, you know, asking you to consider the price that Jesus was willing to, pl- to pay in order to offer us this invitation. Because God has said, God has forbidden for two to be unequally yoked together. And notice now, to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he goes through the list and he begins with what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness. So righteousness and unrighteousness cannot experience and enjoy fellowship with one another. This is what God has said. This, this is the, the truth that God has spoken and declared now remember let's go back to where we started god doesn't say listen you don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers but it's okay for me to be no see he's saying that these these can't be yoked together because there's no fellowship between these things there's no there's no agreement between these uh two opposing positions so consider then the transformation necessary For you and for me to share a yoke with Jesus. For Jesus to be able to say to you and me, come be yoked up together with me. This means that he's going to have to somehow overcome our being unequally yoked with him in order for us to legally, according to the word of God, be yoked together with himself. In our fallen state, before our new birth, 
we did not qualify to be yoked together with Jesus. We were unfit. We were not of the same category, of the same nature. We were not a Delphos. Remember that word, uh, fit for uh, community together with Him. So this next phrase, and this is where we'll start, I think, maybe seeing it more clearly. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And of course, the answer is none. The answer is none. And, and the word here um, for uh, fellowship is uh, the word that means, uh, maybe would be more accurately translated, partnership. Again, in the, in the uh, original language, it's M-E-T-O-C-H-E. And it carries with it the idea of, of fellowship. Don't misunderstand me. Two, two fellows in a ship, okay? But the, the literal meaning here, not koinonia, but partnership with one another. So he's saying that righteousness and unrighteousness cannot experience and enjoy fellowship, partnership with one another. So how did, how did Jesus work this out? He made us righteous. Are you seeing this? He made us righteous. If righteousness and unrighteousness cannot have fellowship, and Jesus is righteous, and we are not, what has to happen if He desires to have fellowship with us? We must be made righteous. What I'm ultimately wanting you to see here is, and and again, we're going to take the whole time tonight to do this. I think it's important. I think it's necessary. But I think what the Holy Spirit, and I need to correct myself there, not just what I want, what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see tonight is that Father found himself in this impossible situation. He he desired to have fellowship with us, but he's light and and we were darkness. He's righteousness and we were unrighteous. Are you seeing this? But he still desires to have fellowship with us, but, but he can't be unequally joined together with someone who is an unbeliever, with someone who is unrighteous, with someone who is darkness. So how did, how did he resolve this dilemma? He made us righteous. See, righteousness is a prerequisite for fellowship. You, 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 can't have right, you can't have fellowship with God if you don't have right standing with God. And so he gave us an abundance of grace, Romans 5, 17, and a gift of righteousness. All right, so now look at the next one. There is no communion, and this word here actually is koinonia, most commonly translated fellowship in the scriptures. Um, There is no communion. Remember, common union is the word that we're looking for there. Don't just think the symbols of of communion, the grape juice and 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 the cracker, the unleavened bread, but those represent us taking within ourselves the blood of Jesus, the body of, of Jesus, and, be, and becoming a part of the blood of Jesus and His life shed for ours, becoming our life. So, there is no communion, there is no common union between light and darkness. So again, if there is no fellowship, if there is no koinonia, if there is no common union between light and darkness, and He is light and we are darkness, what has to happen if He desires to have fellowship or common union with us? We've, we've got to become light. Or it's a, it's a, it's a non-starter. Or we can say it this way, it's a deal breaker. God's not going to violate His own word. 
Now, again, we could look at this from just the practical aspect of this because light's one thing, darkness is another. Have you ever tried to have a, you know, maybe go to a family reunion and that cousin you hadn't seen in six years that's more into drag racing or more into what? I'm not making light of that. But in other words, you're trying to talk to them about the things of God and they don't care less about the things of God. It's, it's hard to have a conversation. Are you following me? So there's that practical application, but we're talking about something uh, here to, to, to see more clearly uh, you know, besides Christians shouldn't hang around with non-Christians. No, that's not, the Bible doesn't teach that. Did you know that? The Bible says that a Christian should not hang out with a Christian who professes to be a Christian, but is living a heathen lifestyle. That's where the Bible says you've got to guard yourself. He says, if, if we're to never associate with, with unbelievers, then how are we ever going to win them to Jesus? Amen. And Jesus set that example for us. Jesus was, was very hard, on, when I say hard, he, he, didn't, he didn't have a lot of patience and mercy with men who knew better but continued to judge others and look down upon others and try to stone other people to death to make him look bad. Jesus was, I mean, he, he called it what it was, right? But then you take, you take uh, somebody whose life is broken and falling apart, I mean, Jesus is like, no, no, you don't stone her, you stone me for her, on her behalf, you know. So, again, we, we, we see this uh, dynamic here, all right? So Jesus has made us light. He is light and we were born a second time from his incorruptible seed. And do I need to remind you that seed reproduces after its own kind? Ephesians 5 and 8, I think, really just kind of sums this up. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So were and are, these are being words. He, he didn't just say that you practiced deeds of darkness. He didn't just say you did dark things or that you were in darkness. He said you were once at one time speaking to the church at Ephesus, born again believers, people who have received the gift of salvation. He says to them and to you and me, you were once darkness. And because we were darkness, there's no fellowship, there's no common union between light and darkness. But Father desired to have fellowship and communion and oneness with you, so what did He do? He figured out a way to make you light. So you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice He says, walk as children of light. So He made us light, so we could have fellowship with light. But he also made us light so we could then learn to walk as children, as notice offspring here. He's talking about children of light, just like he talks earlier in, in the book of Ephesians about being uh, children of wrath and, and the offspring of disobedience. We, we, were the, we were the offspring of damnation. We were the offspring of, of, of disobedient uh, parents, ultimately speaking of Adam and Eve. But now he says, we were dead, but now he has made us alive through this new birth. So because he made you light, you now have the ability to walk as the offspring of light. We were born of the light of the world. And I also want to just draw your attention before we move, move any further. The pattern here is he made us light so that we could walk as children of light. Contrary to what religion tells you, he did not say walk in the light and you will eventually become light. 
Someone who is darkness cannot become light by walking in the light. I want to make sure you understand that now. Meaning you you cannot do enough good deeds to go from um, darkness to light. Now, I don't know of a church anywhere, at least in this area, um, where I could go and preach that and not get an amen or a grunt or a nod or something, where people would agree with it. But if you can't, if you can't go from darkness to light by simply trying to do what people who walk in the light do, someone who is light cannot become darkness by walking in darkness. Why is this? It's because seed reproduces after its kind, and seed is what determines the nature of a thing. The only way to change a thing's nature, or for that matter, a human being's nature, is to change the seed that produced it. Behavior cannot change nature. Jesus died for no reason if there was some good work we could perform to change our nature. The only way a nature can be changed is if the seed that produces and determines the nature is seed. This is why Jesus said, you must be born again. When we were born the second time, we were born the first time of a corrupted seed, the corrupted seed of Adam. Now, having been born again of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God, we have been made light. You can't go from darkness to light by doing what people in the light do any more than you can go from light to darkness by doing what people in darkness do. You cannot do enough good works to change your nature from sinner to saint, and you cannot do enough bad works to change your nature from saint to sinner. Again, being and doing. He then asked the question, what accord has Christ with Belial? Now, Belial is, is just another word for, for Satan or the devil. And here, the word accord comes from the Greek word, and I'm, I'm thinking this is pronounced symphonesis, symphonesis, but it's pretty clear if you could see the spelling of it, right? Um, I'll stick it up on the board. This is just in my notes. But accord has Christ with Belial. Accord equals symphonesis. Think symphony. We get our English word symphony from this, and it means agreement, unison, and oneness. So do you see why all of these words are um, are fellowship words. What agreement, what unison, what oneness does Christ have with the devil? He goes on to ask, what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Part here is the Greek word meris, and it means part or share, and is a word used to imply participation in fellowship. Participation in fellowship. So notice how these first words and what God has done to resolve this dilemma involve our being or our position. But now we're, we're, we're slowly gravitating over to fellowship words that are speaking more towards our functional oneness with God, not just our positional oneness with Him. Here is, I think, one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible that deal with this concept of Maris having a part in or a share of uh, used to imply participation in fellowship. And it's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He says, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he's saying that through the exceeding great and precious promises, a beautiful and poetic way of saying the word of God. Remember, the the message of salvation contains within the message the power of God unto salvation. So when we hear and receive the Word of God, remember this is 2 Peter. 1 Peter one twenty three says uh, that we were born of the, the corrupted seed of Adam, but now we've been born a second time by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And when we were born a second time from the incorruptible seed of the Word of God, we became a partaker of the divine nature of God. This word partaker, again, it ties in with this word meris, a part or a share, and it literally means that we have an equal share in the divine nature of God. An equal share in the divine nature of God. This ties in also with Romans 8 and 17 that says we are heirs of God and joint heirs or co-heirs with Jesus. This word part or share, to have a part in, to have a share in something. And, and this, is the, this is the amazing thing about Jesus He has welcomed you into the family of God and has given you a portion or a share of His Father's love, of His Father's fellowship, of His Father's goodness, and of the inheritance that He uh, fought and won. Amen. He has now given you an equal share with Himself in these things. An equal share of the divine nature. Go back to Hebrews 2. He's not ashamed to call you brethren. He who... uh, Uh, sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one and he's captain of our salvation and he's not ashamed to say that you came from the same womb as him you were born from the same uh, seed as him that you have uh, equal participation in in father's business alongside him amen these are some phenomenal truths here my brother my sister let me let me go let me go back to the 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 symphony part the 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 symphonis amen um, not every person in this room may enjoy symphonic music, but of course the thing about that is, especially if you've ever um, heard a, a, a symphony when when the conductor and to me where it's where it's most obvious is when they're warming up and they all hit that same note and it and it's it could it could be 120 uh, different musicians playing different instruments, but it sounds like one note, you know. It's like, man, the beauty of that, the power of that. And so when he's talking about what accord hath Christ with Belial, he's talking about this this functional oneness, this unison, this agreement, or we could say it, another word, this harmony. That's another word that comes from this word uh, accord or some phonesis. So a a partaker of the divine nature is someone who has an equal share in these things. Now we come to what agreement what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And I'm hesitant to even attempt this one, but it's it's sugkatathesis. Amen. But this is perhaps, I think, one of the most beautiful words. By the way, you do understand all these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And words are important because words mean something. And there's a, there's a reason why we see what begins with a yoke that then goes from uh, uh, metosh and then koinonia and working our way down this, and, and each one talking about fellowship. But notice as we progressively work through these words, uh, all fellowship words, we're, we're progressing from the positional oneness to the functional oneness. All right? So a few more minutes, if you can hang in here with me. I want to try to get this uh, part finished up tonight. All right? So um, let me 
I'll just put it on the screen. I should have just done separate slides for this. All right. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Agreement. So you see that word right there, right? That's the transliteration of this word that we have uh, from the original language that's translated in our word agreement. But agreement really doesn't do this justice. It means literal translation of subcatathesis, even if I'm saying that correctly. It means to put down together with. To put down together with. It could also be translated uh, accord, harmony, or agreement. But here is the unique usage of this word. It speaks of two dwelling together in harmony and oneness. Two dwelling together in harmony and oneness. Now I want to show this to you in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Now this verse 17, this is the one I want to draw your attention to. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So dwell in verse 17 is a key word here and it literally means to settle down and to be at home. To settle down and to be at home. He's not praying that the Ephesians will get saved again. When he's praying that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, and then that they would be rooted and grounded in love, he's talking about them adjusting to this new reality of them being made one together with God. That they would adjust to the positional oneness that they have been given with God, and that that positional oneness would translate into uh, a settling down uh, and, and putting down roots, okay, uh, and, and literally to be at home. So imagine for a moment someone moving in with you, especially let's say that you have lived as, you know, a bachelor or whatever, uh, you've, you, you know, for a lot of years and now all of a sudden you, you got a nephew or something that needs a place to crash and, and they come to move in with you. Well, now um, you've got some adjustments to make to accommodate your new house guest, right? Let's say they work nights and you work days, okay? You know what I'm saying? And so, uh, you know, you, you like to come home from, from work and watch television, but they, you know, they're trying to sleep. Or what, I'm just making up things here, okay? So dwell here is, it, it literally means to settle down and to be at home. And so I want you to think uh, within the backdrop of functional oneness here. Imagine again someone is moving in with you and all the adjustments that need to be made in order to get settled into a new routine, etc. Let me give you the first part of this verse from the Weiss translation, and I love this. It says that Christ may finally settle down and feel completely at home in your hearts through the faith. That He might finally settle down and feel completely at home in your hearts through the faith. And notice now he goes into being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded are key words here and speak to security, confidence, being settled, being anchored, not easily moved or swayed. In other words, you, you finally just get comfortable with being one with God. Where you finally just get used to the reality that you have fellowship with Him 
and that He is with you and He loves you and He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you. Where you get used to Him not just dwelling in you, but walking in you, doing life together with you. Do you see this? The context of what we have in these verses. You will never achieve functional oneness with a new spouse if they walk away every time there's a problem, every time there's an offense, every time there is a disagreement. I see sometimes people get married later in life. And, and man, my hat's off because Pam and I were very young and we got married. And we didn't have a, a whole lot of being set in our own ways yet to adjust to, to accommodate one another, right? And there was the first time either one of us had ever lived outside of our parents' home was when we moved into a one-bedroom apartment together after we got married. Amen. Okay. But, but then, you know, you see folks who, who get married later in life and, and, you know, sometimes, not every time, man, there's just some folks just fall right into it and just, it's a God thing and beautiful. But other times there's challenges, there's adjustments, right? Because we, we've become more, more and more set in our ways the older we get. And now, you know, we, we've got these two, uh, households that are being merged together, especially if there's children that are involved. You know, there's just a lot of adjustments. I'm just, Amen. A lot of adjustments that, that, that have to be made. Well, if you can understand that concept, this is what he's talking about now. He's talking about Jesus has come to live in you. And, and there are places he don't like to go. Amen. There's music he don't care to listen to. Amen. Now, he ain't going to leave you if, you if you listen to some music that, that, that he doesn't like. That you ain't got no business look, listening to or looking at things you ain't got no business looking at. He's not leaving. But he, he, he hadn't got comfortable in you yet. And you hadn't got comfortable with him in you yet. Are you, are you seeing this? I want you to see this. This is what he's talking about here. So this has gone from the positional to the functional. And Jesus knows what we, what we ought to know, right? And what we should understand in, in relation to, the, to this. If, if, if every time... And, and let's say... Um, Let's say you are an employer and you have an employee that you really like and, and for the most part they do a good job, but, but they just do some things that irritate you. And every time you try to address that with them, they walk off. Well, how, how, how can you ever develop the functional oneness, right? Is if every time there's a disagreement, if every time there's an offense, if every time you know, there's something done that the other person doesn't like, if you just, if you just shut them out. Or we could say it this way, if you just abandon them, right? So it, it, it really concerns me when people say that, you know, if you do something Jesus doesn't care for, that he leaves you. No, he doesn't. Now, now again, is that going to hinder your functional oneness with him? You better know it will. Is, is it going to, is it going to uh, uh, affect uh, your comfort level with him being in you all the time? It's, it absolutely will. But it doesn't mean he's going he's to turn his back on you. This is why he made, and we've looked at so many different verses, so many different things that God has said along these lines. But when he said, I'll be in you forever, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the way. Right? What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Amen. He said, that's a marriage well, if, if God says that to a, to a husband and a wife, again, he prefers his word above his own name. If he's telling me and you not to uh, allow uh, anything to separate what he's joined together, why all of a sudden do we think God's going to let something that a man does separate him from you? 
I thought you'd enjoy that point a little more than you did. Amen. All right, stand with me. Praise God. It's a little after 8. I appreciate you hanging in here with me. Are you getting anything out of this? Now, I'm not saying it's going to have the same tone or the same flavor, but I'm, I'm wanting you to see it, you know, perfected forever. Amen. <laughs> eternal redemption, eternal salvation. I mean, what the Bible says about these things. Praise God. And, and listen to me. I, I, some of the things that I was writing about today. Hear me, please. I, I have no axe to grind. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, offend anybody. I'm not trying to um, pick a fight. You know, there's people who just want to argue. And uh, Man, I, qu- I quit arguing with people a long, long time ago. But, but listen to me, please. I want anybody who wants to know, I want anybody who wants to understand, right, to know and understand how good our Father is and how merciful and how kind and just how amazing His grace actually is. It's amazing. It, it is beyond. Well, I mean, you saw it right there. Before, before you can ever begin to, to, to deepen your understanding and put roots down in the full dimension, height, breadth, length, depth, and width, of the love that God has for you that goes beyond your ability to comprehend with human intellect, right? Is we got to get this, this functional oneness part. We got, we got to get this part settled, right? He's got to get settled. He's got to start being at home in your heart and you feeling at home with him in your heart. Amen. And see, now once, once we kind of get past that hurdle, he's here and he's here to stay. He ain't going anywhere. He ain't going anywhere. We, we see this sometimes in, um, in situations like foster care, adopted children, um, maybe somebody that's been abused in their life and, and they, they deal with some insecurities that they're, that they're growing past, right? But they will sometimes try to, um, you know, kids will, foster children sometimes will act out because they believe they're not loved and they're wanting the, their foster parent to validate their belief that all adults are going to reject them. And, and so they'll actually try to make them reject them at first. Parents, let me give you a little clue here, okay? When you set a boundary for your kids, a lot of times they're going to test that boundary because they're just trying to see if it's a firm boundary. But it's the firm boundary that gives the kid the sense of safety and security. So quit trying to let you, you know, quit trying to be your kid's best friend, set boundaries for them, and then if they, if they uh, try to push past those boundaries, let them know there's consequences for that and let them know that's a firm boundary. Because again, they get their sense of security from that. And ultimately, they'll realize that you love them enough to set boundaries for them. Are you following me? Maybe I'm trying to rush all this part here too much since we're out of time. But I'm just, I'm just trying to show you here, right? If, if you consciously or subconsciously try to push the limits with Jesus just to see if he's going to walk away and abandon you, let me go ahead and tell you right now, he's not. And kind of once you get past all of that, then you can start getting settled in. Okay, he's with me, thick or thin, Sickness or in health, right? Good times, bad times, when I'm doing everything right and when I'm doing everything wrong. Either way, right? Even if my own heart condemns me, he's greater than my own heart, and there's therefore no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, now, once we... But if, if, every, if the devil can keep you in a constant state of uncertainty about your salvation, a constant state of uncertainty about whether or not God's going to love you, it's going to be hard for us to break past and get over into the things that will really help us grow and then ultimately start experiencing the fullness of God in our lives. Amen. All right. Father, we love you. Thank you for helping us tonight. Thank you for helping us not just hear these things, but, but receive and retain and meditate upon and allow 
these truths to, again, Father, renew our minds, transform our lives, alter the way we see and understand you, alter the way we see and understand ourselves. Father, thank you for your great love for us. And again, Father, I'm not not trying to irritate anybody. I know there's a lot of people who disagree, Lord, with the things that we've been talking about here of late. I just pray for them, Lord, that they would at least be open to hearing what you have to say about this long enough uh, to get all that the Bible has to say so that they can make the right decision. So many people have made decisions about these things and and they don't have the right information. They don't understand uh, what you actually have said about it and therefore have gotten off into deception and error. But Father, thank you that, that those who want to know the truth and according to their longing to understand, Father, they will be fed and they will receive and we declare it so in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for being here this evening. Good things coming for you and your family. Um, I will see you uh, on Sunday, if not before. Praise God.